The Steve Saga continues. Last week, we invited librarian and novelist Steve Raza to explore his worlds of spaceships, superheroes, and a little steampunk. Now, you could say that we are switching genres to a spy thriller. Well, perhaps not, but we do have a secret agent man arriving in the studio. He has helped to discover some of your favorite authors. He's also helped create a lot of your favorite books in fiction and nonfiction. He leads his own not-so-secret literary agency and is also publisher of Enclave Publishing. Steve Lobby is our next guest on Fantastical Truth. Behold again Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and it is no secret that on my bookshelf are many books that I still need to read, many of them from our publisher today. Please don't tell them and keep that a secret. But this is episode 129, Why Does Fantastical Fiction Express God's Creativity? And we're going to be joined by the head of Enclave Publishing, Steve Lobby. This is episode two of our Steve saga. Next week, we will have a finale. Steve will cue that up in just a little bit. We're also going to go through a few uh, concessions about this episode before we get started with our guest. I think uh, Steve Lobby may be waiting on uh, some final unearthing for his unique means of transport today. Yeah, real quick, uh, for the concession stand, uh, we've got a few snacks here, a little bit healthier this time, I think. We cleared out the potluck from a few weeks ago. Uh, this episode is actually featuring a guest from uh, the cover sponsor for Fantastical Truth, the Enclave Publishing, which is now owned by Oasis Family Media. So whenever you get an ad for either one of them at the top of this show, uh, it's the same folks. Oasis Family Media bought Enclave Publishing earlier this year. Regardless, however, of who the sponsor is, uh, we would want to invite this particular Steve and the next Steve in this Steve saga to hear their unique perspectives behind the scenes of Christian publishing. Another concession, too, if you happen to be in the Christian writer world, Chances are you may have pitched a project uh, to our guest today. And uh, just a little secret for you, we are no exception. But as usual, Fantastical Truth will not be a writing-focused show. We're not doing industry and punctuation and how to get an agent and all that sort of thing. You can go elsewhere for those resources. Instead, we hope to hear as fans Steve's heart behind Enclave and all Christian publishing uh, in which he has spent several decades and has lots of stories to share we want to look behind the scenes, uh, just as if you were looking at a film set as a fan. Just want to see how they make the movie magic. You're not trying to get into pictures yourselves. That's exactly how we're looking at the publishing industry today. Having heard Steve Lobby speak at several events, we always appreciate his candor about this work. He tends to be very positive about this, uh, but also very realistic about it. And I always appreciate that kind of transparency from a fine Christian professional so we're looking forward to that conversation. First, however, let's cover that sponsorship. It's our cover sponsor again for this episode, Enclave Publishing itself, focusing on the upcoming novel Flight by Kristen Young. This is book three of the Collective Underground series. Here's the cover description. On the cusp of graduation, Cadence is finally feeling in control. She's about to become one of the prestigious elites working in the Hall of Love. Plus, she can take her place as a full member of the underground sirens who meet secretly in Love City. She'll finally be able to use her memory skills for good instead of reporting people as a watcher. But a dangerous trap is set, throwing Cadence into unwelcome and unfamiliar territory. Someone in the collective remembers things that could very well get her killed. 
The muse is by her side after all, but will she be protected when someone powerful wants her dead? Enclave Publishing presents Flight by Kristen Young. It is available September 13, wherever books are sold. Also available in audiobook format from Oasis Audio. You can get all those links currently atop our podcast sponsors page, lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors, or get the basic link atop our show notes for episode 129. Steven, I'm really excited to talk to Steve today on the podcast. I first heard a talk from him about four or five years ago, and uh, it was kind of about the basics of why do we even have science fiction and fantasy? Why do Christians write in it? What's, what are we getting at? And there was this line he said that's always stuck with me. Science fiction deals with improbable possibilities, whereas fantasy deals with plausible impossibilities. And I've always thought that's a great way of summarizing it, that science fiction is about our possible future, although probably improbable, not, probably not going to happen. Fantasy deals with things that are just straight up impossible, but it makes the whole setting seem plausible. The, the characters seem very plausible and the, uh, the events, you know, make sense within that world. And uh, it, that's always kind of helped me separate the two a little bit in my head. I enjoy both types of stories. There's plenty of overlap between the two genres. And of course, Enclave Publishing has been in this business for quite some time, even going back to when it was known as a previous publisher name. Interestingly, Zach, just as you were saying that, I recalled that probably the first time I met our second Steve here, Steve Lobby, was at a conference of the American Christian Fiction Writers, uh, which happens to be going on again at the very moment they were recording this episode. So interesting little uh, coincidence of timing there. By the way, I hear this strange scratching sound under the floor. I think our guest may be arriving in the studio. So let's pry up some floorboards and see what's going on. Steve Lobby has worked over 40 years in the book industry. He has been a bookstore manager and editor at Bethany House Publishers before he started his own literary agency. The Steve Lobby Agency has since represented nearly 2,000 books across many different genres. In 2014, he bought an existing publisher of Christian-made fantastical fiction, which is now known as Enclave Publishing. Earlier this year, the company was sold to a new owner, Oasis Family Media, with Steve still serving as publisher. He's also the author of many nonfiction resources for Christian writers, including a new book releasing next year, and is president owner of the Christian Writers Institute. He's also arriving in the studio via a secret tunnel, which has been dug out over 40 years with spoons. Steve, we're so glad you were able to make it today. <laughs> and I'm exhausted with the travel. I mean, oh, man. <laughs> well, that cannot yeah, be maybe easy. Maybe try a bigger spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I'm sure that there's all kinds of uh, worms and little tree branches uh, sticking out the sides of that tunnel uh, oh, in they, the industry yeah, that you're in. They're, they're all over my shoulders right now. I'm very hev a very heavy weight. And to get to Texas, you got to go through all the limestone. So good luck with that. <laughs> so Steve, we like to ask this of any new arrival in the Allure Human Studio. How did you discover biblical faith and fantastic imagination? What is your superhero origin story here? And of course, by Christian law, it has to start with, I was eight years old and I read the Chronicles of Narnia when I accepted <laughs> Aslan as my Lord and Savior. Well, it didn't quite start that way, but I started, you know, grew up in a Christian home and was well discipled and taught uh, the basics of the faith from a very young age. It was when I was, uh, I think it was 10 years old, we were on a long uh, car trip across the United States because we were living in Alaska at the time. So my mom and dad thought it would be cheaper to just fly to Seattle, buy a car, drive it across 
all around the United States and then sell the car and fly home, oh, wow. which, is what, which is what we did. <laughs> uh, so I'm in the back of this station wagon. My two brothers are in the middle seat. I'm, I get the whole back area to myself. And I read Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Ah, uh, yes. I didn't know it was a sequel. So I didn't know who Captain Nemo was. I didn't know any of this background to the story. I just started reading this fantastic adventure on this hidden island. And it captured my imagination. So I began looking for other books that might, you know, serve to capture the imagination. And I think the next one I read was At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is not the Tarzan, which is not the Mars series. It's a land beneath the Earth called Pellucidar, where all the dinosaurs now live. And so there was this entry, I think, through a volcano shaft or whatever, and you're under under the Earth. That captured my imagination. I read every single book in that series then began reading the Mars series, then, you know, start exploring, exploring, exploring. And I think I was 16 when my, one of my older brothers gave me the Chronicles of Narnia uh, for Christmas. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to really get granular in my memories here. But that same Christmas, I had asked for a new album, which will now date me because I said the word album. <laughs> but I asked for Ed Emerson Lake and Palmer's new album called Brain Salad Surgery. So I'm listening to Brain Salad Surgery while I'm reading Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That is the soundtrack in my head whenever I think of Narnia. Literally. What is Brain Salad Surgery? What, what, is, what, what kind of music oh, is that? Um, uh, let's just call it progressive rock or electronic rock. Okay. Uh, you think of the song, uh, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. That's in that album. Oh, okay. I have heard of that one. So you start listening, and I can still hear the, the Moog synthesizer from Keith Emerson and the, the uh, vocals of uh, Chris Lake, I think was his name, was the, uh, the main singer. And I hear that music whenever I think of Narnia. I highly doubt that C.S. Lewis had that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people think of the, uh, there's the BBC uh, uh, made for TV series that they did, which had a rather memorable theme. A lot of people associate that. For me, I guess the only music I think of Narnia is the, you know, admittedly the 2005 uh, film soundtrack, which is, which is pretty good. Sure. Pretty good. But uh, I would not have thought about a, a, a rock album being the prime association there. I would put the uh, the records on my record player and put on my headphones and then sit in my bed and read. And so a lot of books from that era have soundtracks in my head because I was exploring all sorts of kind of music at the time, partly because there were no there was no Christian alternative mm. at the time. Again, dating myself, you had Barry Maguire, you had Love Song, you had Phil Keggy. They really didn't rock and roll for someone who was in high school who liked Black Sabbath and Blue Oyster Cult and uh, Aerosmith, which was a brand new group at the time. But it was truly during that time that the, the concept of the imagination and these 
fantastical stories, to use your word, which is a great word for it, uh, literally captured my imagination. It just took me to those places that I never thought were possible and began a journey into which I've, I've estimated, tried to estimate how many science fiction or fantasy novels that I've read in my lifetime, and it's probably getting close to 3,000. Wow. I'm a voracious reader. I'm a fast reader. And so when someone begins talking to me about an idea as if it's brand new, that, oh, it's never been done before, I'm going, uh, yeah, it has. It was in, <laughs> you know, Theodore Sturgeon's book, or it was in Alfred Bester's book, or, you know, all these obscure authors. And I'm, they're not obscure, they're classics. You just haven't read them. So don't say it's unique. It might be. But make sure your you, your claim is absolutely accurate. So you moved from enjoying these books uh, to being the manager of a bookstore, and then from there, not to skip too much, uh, you end up uh, working actually doing uh, editorial work, and uh, I think ultimately right acquisitions with uh, Bethany House Publishers, which is the evangelical publisher. Yeah, I uh, was hired to as an acquisitions editor for Bethany House. Uh, they didn't really want me to do their proofreading or their copy editing, that would have been a big mistake. Um, but I, even in the interview, Carol Johnson, who is the lady who hired me, and that's, by the way, the lady for whom the Carol Awards are named. Oh, So I was hired by one of the great uh, stalwarts of Christian fiction in our industry, uh, who you know, really nurtured and helped me along. But she said, we need to have someone who has an instinct for what a good book is. And we think you have that. To jump forward in this kind of this journey, when it came to publishing science fiction or fantasy in the Christian marketplace, now remember my background. This is my interest. And the editorial staff and the marketing people and the finance people and management, they all knew what I liked. But I waited seven years before I pitched my first science fiction project to the pub board. And I still remember to this day introducing the project. I said, I have been with the company for seven years. I have brought a bunch of different projects to you. And you all know I'm kind of a science fiction and fantasy nerd. And I raised my hand with the symbol, live long and prosper. And they all laughed. And I said, how many of those kinds of books have I brought to this table in the last seven years? And they said, none. I said, you're right, until today. And that was Kathy Tires and the novel Firebird. And I was able to say, this is an author who has written Star Wars novels, has been on the New York Times bestseller list. And if we are going to experiment, for lack of a better term, in this genre, we can't do any better than this. This is where we have to start. And I remember Gary Johnson, Carol Johnson's wife, who was the president of the company, he leaned back in his chair and he goes, well, if you think it'll work, then let's do it. And this was a man who fell asleep watching Star Wars for the first time. <laughs> oh dear. Wow. I can't imagine he was, that. He did not like science fiction and fantasy. Mm. I gave him the novel Ender's Game. He couldn't finish it. He just, it was not his thing. So for him to put the publisher's reputation behind a genre that they had never done in their history, 
is really quite a tribute to his forward thinking. And so we went from, uh, it was the Kathy Tyers books, then we did Brandy Ingermanson and John Olson's Oxygen and Fifth Man, uh, you know, where I started winning Christie Awards, and then I acquired Karen Hancock with her books that have started winning Christie Awards, I've actually won four in a row, to the point that they had to, um, in fact, it was because of her, they created the Hall of Fame for the Christie Awards to retire someone who has won four times so they could, so other people could win. And, um, after, after that, um, you know, we had kind of this momentum, but then Baker came along and bought Bethany house in 2003. And at that moment I had to make a career decision. Do I stick with the existing organization or do I step out? and try to do something new. And that's when I formed the agency, or at least I became an agent and then formed my own agency about a year later. When I left, the advocate for the genre went away. Mm. And if you'll know, if you'd notice in history, there's a gap between around 2005 to around 2008, when there weren't any books being done in the, uh, in the market per se. And then in 2008 is when Jeff Gerke started Martial Lord Press as a way of solving that problem. And I remember at the time when he did that, I thought, oh, good. Now I don't have to do it. <laughs> and it was six years later when he and I, uh, five years later, he and I talked about it, uh, about it. And that's when I bought Martial Lord Press, rebranded it as Enclave Publishing. And that's where we are today. Uh, real quick though, uh, Steve, before we ever met, which I think was fairly brief, may have been an ACFW conference in the mid 2000s, as I recall, uh, in the few years before then I had had to subsist with any Christian made, uh, fantastical fiction I could find. I think among the first that I found was the three volume collection of the Firebird then trilogy from Bethany house. I still have that book, uh, and it's uh, really cool. And I enjoyed that a lot. And then after that, I remember getting a hold of this book called Oxygen, which is from the same publisher. And that was by uh, Randy Ingermanson and uh, John Olson. And I uh, just, just loved it. And then I still remember, I'm not sure what happened here, but the publisher had at least through, I think it may have been the family Christian stores when that chain was still open. Uh, they sent a postcard to my house. I don't know if they sent a postcard to anybody on the store's mailing list or if they had a way of knowing that I was an Oxygen fan. But they sent a postcard to my house to say that the fifth man, the sequel to that book, huh. was going to release. And they had the date and everything. This was in the early days of the Internet when you couldn't wow. get as many emails about that. And I just remember like that that broke the news to me that there was going to be a sequel. And to this day, you know, I'd like there to be a trilogy because the crew is still out there on the Aries. They, they still haven't gotten home. <laughs> they left their man on Mars. He went a little nuts. Uh, spoiler alert. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> see our episode with uh, Randy Ingramson about that. Well, to use the Ray Bradbury uh, famous story about Mars, they're still living there and they are the Martians. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think, in fact, I think that those will be the only Martians will be the people, uh, unless uh, Ingermans and, and Olsen are correct, that there could be some spores or a fungal growth or something on Mars. And at least in their view, uh, that would not mess with the Christian view of, uh, of aliens. 
That's that's so cool that you have that connection to those to those books. And... I still remember, yes. And uh, what was it? Uh, of course, the the pitch for that book originally go to is still on your website uh, yep. as an example of a really really good pitch or a really good proposal. They pitched it to me at Mount Hermon verbally, and then what you see on my website is what they sent to me. And as you can see, they called it O2. And I said, well, no one, unless they're scientists, won't know what that is. So let's call it oxygen. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it got it got to go just a little bit populist uh, in yeah, order to appeal to the readers. Part of being yeah. a servant, I suppose. So of the 3,000 science fiction and fantasy books you've read, not, you probably hadn't read them all by that point, but I'm sure you'd read hundreds maybe by that point. Why Ender's Game? Why did you give that? to your boss at Bethany House. What, what is it about that book that you liked? Well, for one thing, it was a standalone, at least at the time. Like There were sequels later that they're good, but they're odd. Uh, what I like about Ender's Game, as I told him and as I tell anyone about Ender's Game, especially if you're a, if you're a man, it is every little boy's fantasy who's somewhat nerdy, who has the opportunity to save the world and the idea of being in a school and being going through all the training that they were going through and just the whole reveal of what that training ultimately meant. Uh, it's very much a capturing of that feeling that you have when you're younger, that of the possibilities of what can happen. Now, I didn't give him Dune because I felt Dune would have been too complex. Dune is actually my favorite of all science fiction or fantasy that I've ever read. Uh, I think I've read it five times, six times now. And it, it just, there's something about the creativity. We almost, you know, dismiss it now because it's like, oh yeah, you know, big worms that create some drug that allows navigation to happen between planets. Okay, whatever. You have to realize when that came out, <laughs> nobody had ever thought of anything like that or the scope of what he was creating and his invention of an amalgamum religion that combines Islam and Christianity and Judaism and with a touch of Buddhism all wrapped into this weird, strange amalgamum made me, and I think of it later as I think of it analytically, is that an author can have religion in their books and have it make sense. There you go. Oh, absolutely. Without trying to convert the reader. Oh, I finished Dune, uh, unfortunately caught up to it way later than you did, Steve. I finished it last year. For the first time, just in time to see the movie, because somehow I had missed it all. And uh, I was Orange Catholic by the end. I was uh, thumbing through <laughs> that little book. I don't even know what that means, Orange Catholic. It's like supposed oh, to be the Green Catholic, yeah. But if you think about how he did it, is that he wasn't using the religion as a method to convert you, because you couldn't be converted. The religion didn't exist. So I look at it now as someone who's publishing books that go into or come from people from a Christian worldview. The idea is not necessarily to convert, although that would be wonderful. It's the idea to show the expressive nature 
of God's creation and his kingdom through the imagination without saying chapter five has to be the conversion scene where, you know, you have to say the sinner's prayer. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it doesn't work in fiction. It'd be better to show how people are interacting with their faith, whatever that faith may be, and uh, some some flexibility there without going too far afield and just doing Star Wars, which is another version of Buddhism. I still remember editing a novel where the author had the character finding their faith within. And I said, well, you do realize that is Buddhism. That if you look into your in yourself and you find it within, I said, actually, the Christian faith is from without. And it comes in through the power of the Holy Spirit and transforms the heart rather than the heart transforming itself. And I remember the author going, oh my goodness, I never thought of that. I've always thought, you know, in meditation and whatnot, you know, you're looking within and, you know, for peace. And I got that, that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. You're talking about conversion here. And so with three or four different sentences, the author was able to change it so that it didn't come across theologically incorrect. And yet the author didn't know it was theologically incorrect until I pointed it out. Yeah, you know, I've I've noticed with so many things in the last 10 years, it's all about finding your authentic self and your true self. There's a smidgen of truth to that because God created the world and it was good. And then the flaw of sin moved into everything. And then he's going to restore the world with the new heavens and new earth. So there is a sense in which we do find the, our truest nature in Christ. But you're right, we can't just find that in ourselves. That's a Gnostic, basically, believe yes, ultimately. Very much so. Well, it's also American civil religion. I mean, whether someone is a Buddhist or Buddhism adjacent or not, uh, that is just a very appealing sentiment that is spread even by those who claim not to be religious. So I'm glad you're able to help fix that a little bit. And it actually helps me then to sympathize if I'm reading a novel from a Christian author and I maybe come across a theme that, like, oh, this is unbiblical or, you know, this makes the author a heretic. Like, well, not necessarily. Uh, it's just simply a matter of the author maybe having, as you said, never thought of it that way. And maybe right. it just takes somebody to come along with a little bit more of a steady theological hand and say, well, actually, you know, the Holy Spirit influences us from outside. So if we're looking within us, it's more like looking to the Spirit who is still coming from outside. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I tend to be very careful about any books that we would ever publish under Enclave or that I would even represent as an agent that are dealing with the supernatural. If we're going to look at those, I'm going to, probably going to ask that author for their theology of angels and demons. I want you to write it out. I want you to give me a 10-page paper on what you believe, because it may be they've never studied it before. And consequently, I will have times at conferences where someone will sit across from me and pitch something, and I'll look at them, and it's supernatural, angels and demons, you know, that kind of world. And I look at them and go, you do know that that's not biblical, what you just pitched. I said, it's creative. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly creative. However, in the light of the scriptures, and then I will cite a few passages, and I'll say, you probably need to go back 
It doesn't mean your idea is invalid. It needs to be adjusted in how you're portraying these various powers, principalities and powers, so that it follows a biblical worldview. So can angels become humans and fall in love with another human? There's your big question about, you know... The... Well, Nicolas Cage says yes. He, he made a whole movie about this. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think that settles I mean, it. He was in Left Behind, so there's a weird crossover there, but... Well, you you know, it's the question of the Nephilim, of what were they, you know? And mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as a created being like that? Or was it mythology? I mean, what is it? We don't know, but this is where people will go to something like that and they then extrapolate hyper-creativity, but then they simply leave the Bible behind. They're using the Bible as their flashpoint or their creative point, which is fine, but you've got to ultimately have to bring it back. If we're going to be true to who we are and what we're trying to do as a publisher. Amen to that. We, we wouldn't have published Dune. I couldn't have. Oh yeah. <laughs> what would it took like an auto parts uh, repair manual company or something that ultimately published Dune back then? Nobody wanted yeah, to publish it. Nobody Dune. wanted it. Yeah. Very strange, very strange story uh, behind the strange story. Well, and even if, if you read his series and continue it, they get progressively stranger. After the tr first three, it just gets so weird that it's almost unreadable. And it has come to light later that the author, Frank Herbert, was really into LSD at the end. So he found his own spice to, yeah, uh, he did. to inspire him. And <laughs> it shows in what's being, what was written, especially in book six, I think, and seven. It just got strange. So in a moment, I want to circle back to uh, what you've described the enclave uh, purpose of being uh, to share out of this world stories informed by a coherent theology. Let's go real quick to chapter one. Uh, what is the enclave publishing story? Uh, we've already alluded to that just a little bit. Uh, how you uh, bought the publisher uh, from uh, uh, Jeff Gerke, was previously called Marcher Lord Press and then rebranded as Enclave. What would you say then is the mission of Enclave Publishing as opposed to other publishers of fantasy, sci-fi, and beyond, uh, or even uh, different and unique among uh, Christians who are attempting these kinds of stories? Well, that, that is interesting. It's, it's, it was done more out of a, a sense that I didn't want Marcher Lord Press to die. It was struggling fiscally. And I thought, you know, we can't, we have to have the alternative because there were fewer and fewer of our major Christian publishers that were doing books in the uh, speculative category. And then the general market or secular market, however you want to deter, uh, label it, was, were becoming increasingly secular and increasingly anti-Christ. They had never been pro any in any way shape or form but it had become even more militaristic in its uh advocacy of anything non-christian or immoral or whatever and i just thought we need to have some sort of uh, alternative and i think it was the first two years we were moving in that direction and then a um a new startup publisher called gilead publishing came along and offered to buy us and take us into the stratosphere. And I went along with that idea. And for three years, Gilead did their level best, but ultimately had went into bankruptcy. The funding that they had contractually were supposed to receive never materialized. Oh, wow. And so they literally ran out of money. 
And so I took the company back in 2019, spent six months trying to figure out now what are we going to do now that I have it back. And that's when I decided we need to make an even bigger investment and a bigger splash. There you go. And that's when I started publishing in hardcover. Awesome. Which no one, no one in this market does, especially in a sliver of the market called speculative fiction. I just said, no, we need to go out there and create something that says, look, we are as good as Tor. We are as good as Daw. We are as good as Bain Books. We are as good as Orbit. We have the product that is as good as anything else that's out there. And I would happily put those books up against them in a row and have you read them and tell me which is the bad one. It probably wouldn't be ours. That's my goal. So I wanted to make a difference, and it slowly but surely began to make inroads. I would say there was a lot of skepticism. A lot of folks were probably waiting to see if we would disappear and if we would give up. Uh, I'll say personally, there were probably moments where I felt like I should, because the amount of monetary investment that was being poured into these uh, was significant. But I just believed in it passionately, and my wife believed in it passionately. And our family, we were just saying, you know, make this happen. See what happens. See how God will take this. Meanwhile, you saw, again, fewer and fewer Christian publishers were doing this. I have a feeling they saw what Enclave was doing and said, oh, good. Now we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like what I said when Jeff Gerke did his thing, is they're just kind of going, you know, we don't have anybody who's really championing it and our sales reps don't understand it. So fine. Let them fuss with it. And if you look at it right now, there are very few competitors in our space, none for adult, but only a couple for YA. And so we have a niche that we have carved out. Let's take a quick break and learn more about our second sponsor for this episode. It's author Candy J. Wyatt with a middle grade fantasy called An Unexpected Adventure. Here is the back cover. Harley will do anything to keep his new pal safe, but a hungry dragon needs to eat and the government is hot on their tail. Harley Mager's seen E.T. and he knows what the government will do to mythical creatures. There's no way he's about to let his newfound friend fall into the hands of an NSA agent. When the dragon starts setting fires and eating livestock, the choice may be taken from him. Steria is only interested in filling her tummy and spending time with Harley and his friends. After all, they're the ones who woke her and called her from her egg. When the agent tries to capture her, she's confined to the farm where she's safe but without sufficient food. She'll do anything to protect herself and Harley, even if it means she'll go hungry. An Unexpected Adventure is the fun first book in the Middle Grade Fantasy Myth Coast Adventures trilogy. If you like clean entertainment full of adventure and mischief, then you'll love Candy J. Wyatt's unique trilogy. You can get all the links to that in our show notes for this episode, 129, or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. It was a year ago when uh, Oasis came to me. They had already licensed our books for audio. And they came to me and said, you know, we really want to grow our company and expand and diversify. And we believe in what you're doing. And when you do your interview with Steve Smith, one of the other Steves in this crew, you will hear his vision was, it's very similar. It's as if we separately 
had constructed our vision. And then when we came together and began expressing it, we realized we were quoting each other. Mm. It's really quite amazing. Oh, that is so cool. Wish I could have been part of that conversation. To have that happen and then convince the owner of Oasis that this would be a good investment. And here we are a year later, and I just met with them uh, at their offices uh, a week ago and uh, had just a fantastic conversation of where we've come just in the last eight months since the transition has occurred. And for them to trust the existing Enclave team enough to say, just keep doing what you're doing. We don't need to be messing with something that works. But what we want to do is to bring the power of our organization to what you have and raise all boats. And so the vision is to become much more effective and visible in the marketplace. It will take time as long as our quality is there, our covers are great. In fact, Steve Smith came up with a great uh, marketing campaign for the Library Association this summer. This is in his headline was, you can judge our books by their cover. Mm. And uh, we have a new campaign called Take Us to Your Reader. Oh, uh, nice. very nice. You heard it here first, folks, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Take us and, to your reader. Uh, I, mean, I even own the domain. So, okay. <laughs> so what, kind what of the this, domain is that? This, Take us to your reader.com. Yep. And there's nothing there right now, but it's just, it's just fun to say, we want to do something that's the alternative to the general market that we can no longer trust what comes from them mm, yes. to be appropriate for our kids or even for ourselves. I mean, there are times where I'll pick up a book and I'm start reading. I'm going, oh my goodness sake, I don't want to read this. I don't want to put this in my mind. And for someone who's read so much, the fact that those barriers are being blown through by current authors is mind-boggling absolutely mind-boggling and so to have someone come to our books yeah they may not agree with everything that in the storytelling or or what but it's at least going to be within reach you know we're not going to satisfy every reader that's impossible but at least we will be an alternative to what's out there you know i've often said that the most unrealistic thing about star trek is that there's all these humans with no religion in the future and that that is right. what I liked about Dune is that it imagined a future with religion, but you're right. It's kind of this weird amalgam and so many books coming out now though, have, have sort of doubled down on that. And not only is there no religion, but there is this religion as Stephen calls it of sexualityism. you know, yeah. that's kind of the religion and you know, there's plenty of books with all kinds of different characters in them, but some books I've read in recent years are conversion stories or basically evangelistic tracks into this new religion. And there was one book in particular I got on Kindle. I'm not going to mention the title, but I got done with it. And I'm like, this was so different than what I thought. Not only do I not want to read this again, I wouldn't want my kids to ever read this. And I just deleted it from my Kindle library. And I think that's the only book I've ever deleted. Um, Usually I'm worried about Amazon deleting books that I've bought. But this one, I was like. (laughs) Zach's method of uh, book burning there. You're such a sensor there, Zach. (laughs) Digital book burning. There we go. You heard it here first. (laughs) So that's kind of the, I don't know if I answered your question there, Steve. But, um, you know, that's the vision or what at least we're attempting to do theoretically. Um, Practically, it's it's a challenge. Um, You know, finding the right kinds of stories, the right kind of readers. 
expanding into YA in early 2020 was a big move for me. We had been doing books that you could have said were on the edge, but I didn't want, I just, I didn't feel that our, our company could handle the, uh, the, the distinction, but then I realized, yeah, we could. And so we created the Enclave Escape. Uh, and by the way, if visually, if anybody is curious and you see our books on a book table, the difference between the adult and the YA is the trim size. So six by nine hardcover is adult. Five and a half by eight and a half is YA. Yes, it says it on the spine, but you can actually visually see the difference. And that's because in the general market, the YA titles are five and a half by eight and a half, and the adult titles are six by nine. <laughs> so we're speaking uh, of the hardcover size there. Uh, the YA yeah. books are going to feel slightly smaller, maybe a little bit more uh, accessible, a little less weightier, at least uh, physically speaking. Technically, and it, it's all a matter of, you know, on the interior, you know, the uh, typesetting may have a little more space in it. Sometimes our adult titles get very dense and very long. Um, yeah. So we, uh, you have to throw an awful lot of words on the page so that we're not charging seventy nine ninety nine for the hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> There's a science to all this stuff, folks. And, and that is. leads us to chapter two of our discussion. Uh, we've already touched on it again, but why does Enclave create Christian-made fantasy? And Stephen, Zach, you've both talked about uh, some of the uh, issues in the general market. And that's what I appreciate a few times, Steve, when uh, you and I have been at different events and you've been on a panel. Uh, and even some folks that, you know, I'm sure they very mean well, but at Christian-hosted events, and they will speak, for example, about uh, all of the diversity in things, you know, they use good words to describe maybe some good things that are happening uh, in the general market, uh, but then others will kind of cheerlead uh, some of, yeah, what I call the, the sexualityism. Oh, you've got all these different uh, identities represented in the books, and it's so great. Uh, and I remember at least at one event where you just said, uh, yeah, I think that's actually one of my greatest concerns that this is going on. But I mean, what are some other challenges then in the general market that makes it necessary uh, to do that thing that may seem like a corny uh, response to some of our listeners, especially if you've grown up in an evangelical environment, but that we argue is still very necessary, this idea of a Christian alternative, so long as the stories are made with excellence and creativity. Speculative fiction, like no other genre, reflects the creativity of God. If you write a mystery or you write a thriller or you write a techno thriller, you are basing it on the rules of this world, the physics of this world, the way people interact. It's all taking place on Earth and all of the other things that you have related to that. But in speculative fiction, you can make it all up. There's no boundary to the creativity. But that's why we say it's informed by a coherent theology, not expressed by a coherent theology. And there's your difference. An expression is that you're actually telling the Christ story. But I jokingly will say it this way, and I don't care if I'm quoted it like this, but I hope you understand the humor in the statement, is that if Jesus shows up in your fantasy novel, it's a bad book. What is he doing here? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't belong in this world that I just made up, but if you place him in the guise of Aslan, it makes perfect sense. But take a Jewish individual from the beginning of 2,000 years ago 
and place him into a book with white witches, it's just going to be weird. It doesn't make sense. But I would rather have the author discover it than have you as the author point to it and go, see, Gandalf is Jesus. And you're going, well, no, he's not. And even in reality, even in the Tolkien world, not truly a Jesus figure. He is a very strong, powerful force for good, and he does sacrifice himself, but it has completely different implications if you're trying to find the theology in, in The Lord of the Rings. We're trying to show that if the world is saying that you need to look, again, going back to our earlier conversation, if you need to look to yourself for your own salvation, I'm saying that that's not going to be ultimately satisfying. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're going to disappoint yourself. That's a really good distinguishing mark. And that it kind of leads into my next question for you. One thing I've noticed nowadays with, even with fantastical stories, readers want stories to feel realistic. And usually that comes down to character and, and dialogue and, and things like that. And, you know, my thought is the most realistic story that you could create would be a universe, even a multiverse or whatever, but a universe that's created by God, because that's the only universe that exists. And so I would expect a story to have certain laws to it. Like there's this, you know, classic uh, evangelistic track, the four spiritual laws. And it starts out by saying, just like there's physical laws that govern the universe, there's spiritual laws that kind of govern our relationship with God. So my question for you is what are some of the laws, like, like the spiritual laws of books that you look for? I am asked what makes Enclave books Christian. And the answer is the author does. Thank Mm. you. Yes. Christian made. That's the adjective I use. Not just Christian book, but Christian made book. Exactly. So the author's worldview or their background and their understanding then comes into the expression of the story itself. If you are trying to write a theological track and call it fiction, it's going to be a horrible story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Instead, you just write an amazing story. And people are like, oh, oh, wow, this is so amazing. And then someone says, well, where's the Christian part in it? Well, then you get five or six people together and they start digging into it and they go, oh, wow, did you see that? I didn't see that. Oh, that's how I understand it. And the author might even be in the room going, wow, I never intended you to think of it that way. (laughs) But sure, because we each bring our own story to the story, our personal life, our personal understanding. And so the three of us could read the same novel and come away with three different understandings of its intent, its purpose, and its meaning. I read the Songs of Albion trilogy that Stephen Lawhead did many, many, many years ago. I had waited five years for the trilogy to be complete. And I waited five years until, and then I binge read it in one week, all three massive volumes. And I remember going through it at times going, well, where's the Christian content? You know, where's the, where's the allegory? Because it was, it isn't obvious. It's, it's there, I guess. But in the last scene of book three, he turned the entire trilogy into an allegory in one scene. And I wept. I, I still remember sitting on my couch, just tears streaming down my face going, wow. And I was worshiping 
an author had done that to me. And I, it was brilliant. I suspect that other people would read the whole thing, come to the very end going, well, that was okay. They didn't see it the way I saw it because I was bringing a different set of expectations and understanding to it. So I've said that to some people. I do remember one guy coming back to me and goes, I read the trilogy and I'm going, what did you see? I didn't see it. That's okay. That's what fiction does. Fiction, it's either going to entertain you or it's going to make you think, or it's just going to help you cross a street that you've never crossed before, feel something you've never felt before, and thought something you've never thought before. That's what great fiction does. It isn't scripture. It's not necessarily going to change your life, but it may change how you think of life through the power of story. And to do something that nonfiction can try to teach you, but instead you have discovered it yourself as a reader rather than having it presented to you in a PowerPoint presentation, and then you respond to it. To me, that's where the, the, many of the big differences are. And that's, boy, don't hear that as a criticism of nonfiction, because it's not. I think the beauty of nonfiction is that you can explore an idea like a hand grenade without fear of it blowing up. <laughs> you can actually go, oh, look, there's a pin. Should I pull it? Probably not. But I can sure explore this thing. And oh, my goodness, it's a dangerous idea. But let's turn it upside down and look at it from the bottom instead of from the side. And let's look, look at it from the top. Let's pull it apart. Let's analyze it and see which pieces we think are appropriate to discuss. That is the exchange of ideas. Fiction is, does not have that intent. Fiction is there to tell a great story. It's there to entertain. And if you get some byproduct from it, great. And here's the ultimate kicker. When you're done, if you tell 10 other people about it, it's a great book. If it's done and you set it aside going, no, oh, that was nice, and it's eminently forgettable, then it was an okay book. And I would say for most of us, most books we read fall in the latter category. Yeah. It's the ones we end up talking about that become the permanent ones that are on our shelves and that become part of our exchange of, of discussion and ideas. If we try to do that with every single book that we publish at Enclave, we drive ourselves nuts. Our goal is to try to just tell great stories in creative, creative ways. When you have Vivid by Ashley Bustamante, a debut author in this particular world the magic is color and so people have a color that is the power rather than something else and it's just so unique but steve i do want to go back to something you were addressing and that is you know this idea of diversity and zach what you were talking about realism i always find it funny because people say well the books that you publish, I mean, they're, they're clean. They shouldn't be. There should be, they should have sex and violence and, and a lot of curse words. And I'm going, really? So who decides what's appropriate? We are going to make them such that you don't even have to ask that question. There are times where we will pull back certain romantic tensions in the editing process so that that is not the most important part of the story. It's not a version of Twilight, whether it's wolfmen or vampires that you're going to fall in love with. It's more of the, eh, 
you know, they can fall in love, they can have romantic tension, but that doesn't drive the story. These are not romantic fiction. These are no, not romantic science fiction and fantasy. Although, if you read Firebird by Kathy Tires, you'll have some people say, we love the battle scenes, can't stand the romance. And you have <laughs> other people who say, love the romance, can't stand the battle scenes. I've heard because both. Yep. <laughs> it does both, but with a balance. Again, it doesn't drive the story. And with language, oh my goodness sake, our books are going to be very clean. I will not put up with coarse language. It's just not appropriate. The irony is that in one house, a particular word is used by everyone in the family. It's used by mother, father, daughter, sons, uncles, aunts, grandpas, grandmas. You go into another house, you say that word, and a piece of soap is stuck in your mouth. So who decides which is right? I say, let's just not make it an issue. Let's just remove it, because you can still write a very angry person without having to use a letter and then asterisks. You don't have to do that. Plus, if it's fantasy, they probably didn't use that word in that particular story world. You can kind of come up with other words that could be uh, more flagrant, but they're made up words for that world. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's, 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 it's tough. It's really tough to deal with that. And then on the diversity side, let's talk about gender diversity. No, it, it, they're boys and girls. There's men and women. We're just not going to go there. And then with racial diversity, again, if that is going to be the driving force of your story, I'm going to be saying, why? What are we trying to accomplish here? We can have diverse characters, but we don't have to lord it over the rest of the story. In fact, there was one time, uh, it was so frustrating. And I know I'm going in on public record here with this, but it's frustrating to us when we're trying to make the books in such a way that you can place the race of the characters yourself. You don't even know if they're white, Asian, African American, American Indian, Indian Indian. You can't tell. So in other words, you can interject it because we're not sitting there describing their facial features or their coloring. So then the reviews come out, and the review actually said for one of our books, it presents as white. And I just went, no, it presents as nothing. That was intentional. Presents as human. It, exactly. It presented as human beings who were interacting with each other in a fantasy world. It's just frustrating when the world is trying to interject issues into the creative process that they weren't doing five years ago, I then as a publisher and as overseeing the editorial process, I'm frustrated by it because we're trying to say, look, it's not the point of the story. And it's not that we're being ignorant and it's not that we're being colorless. We're just saying it's not the issue here. Let's focus on the redemptive element of this story, this character's movement through life. And if you want to make them Asian, you want to make them whatever, then go right ahead. 
So we're talking a lot about human beings and what they love to read, but let's take another break and get to our third sponsor for this episode, which focuses on robots because it is the science fiction novel Lost Bits by Carrie Neitz. Here is that description. The last thing K404 remembers is a happy home with the human child L, whose care is his primary purpose. So when he wakes up in a landfill of tossed away technology, his only thought is to reunite with his family. This world is not his own, though. It's a wasteland of desolate buildings, flying metal discs, and monstrosities that keep themselves active by stealing another bot's power. How did the world get this way, and why was he discarded? Hampered by imperfect memory, an obsolete body, and limited battery life, 404 sets out to find his home. Joined by other castaways, he faces off against scavengers and monsters only to encounter greater threats. Pursued, outsmarted, and manipulated on every side, 404 teeters on the brink of annihilation. His only chance of survival? Those bits of himself, the connections he hasn't lost. Get more information about the hardcover, paperback, or audio versions of Lost Bits at Amazon. You'll find the link in our show notes for episode 129 or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. We have a book coming out next year that's based in a futuristic China. Oh, cool. And it's on purpose. Yeah, it's a Candace Cade's book. Yeah. Yeah, very purposeful. And the challenge is that Candace and I actually had the conversation. Is, is, uh, is there going to be cultural appropriation? <laughs> and I told her, I said, I'm not going to worry about that. You just write a great story. Because she grew up in Beijing. She speaks fluent Mandarin. After she graduated from college in the U.S., she went back to Beijing and work there and live there. So even in some of the terminology in the book, it's true to Chinese culture. Just even the naming of a character where a person's first name is actually the last name. So you would call me Lobby Steve. So that's how it's presented in the book because that's true to the culture in this area. And for those of you who will enjoy these kinds of things, when we do the cover reveal uh, next month, look for the Easter eggs on the front cover because there are Chinese characters that mean something on the front cover. It's done on purpose, but I know we're going to get criticism from secular reviewers that say this is cultural appropriation. I'm just going to laugh at them going, you people have no idea. There seems to be some kind of trap here that's often laid in these conversations of you need diversity, but don't culturally appropriate. From my perspective, it's like the whole point of a book is to take you somewhere that the author thinks up and imagines and, and people are free to read or not read. Uh, but uh, there's just a very new moral code nowadays that I, I just think that's entirely opposite of the value of free speech that we, that we can speak what we want and we can listen to what we want, but there's too many speech control codes in my opinion that are going on with all of this. It's very frustrating as a publisher trying to make these kinds of decisions in acquisitions. I mean, I have to sit there and go, should I publish this? Should I not? Why should I even have be asking this question? It's a great book. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's just going to blow your socks off. You're going to love this story and not worry about the rest. And that, but those are risks you take. We hope that uh, it will be well-received and that that issue will just go away. Steve, I think this is where a coherent theology, in your phrase, uh, really helps here uh, because you're, you're working with 
uh, more biblical expectation of imagination and why God has given us this gift to reflect the human experience that in a way, I think, reflect God's glory back to him, which is the point of having the gift of creativity at all to show God back to himself, to glorify him ought to be the purpose. Uh, but then Perfect. you get these uh, these contrary expectations, both from a more you know biblical culture, more evangelical culture, as well as the secular culture. Like, well, this is not a good story that is a moral story unless you have Jesus in the story like, by name, unless you have a specific conversion scene, you know, unless there's an altar call at the end or something like that. Uh, I see very few of those books now, but at least in the past, that has been a silent expectation among some well-meaning Christians. It seems to be on the way out, but often, as you mentioned, you get this uh, this secular version of that expectation where this is not a moral story unless you have a summons to be better, unless you have a summons to tolerate this particular gender expression that did not exist pre-2014. Uh, unless you have this uh, this view of diversity, TM, uh, that may be based in part on more biblical reflections of you know the human nature, a uh, post-Babel dispersion where God has made different people to make different kinds of cultures and reflect him in different ways, but that are also mixed up in these very worldly, uh, secular views of, of diversity and some certain theories and things. And it gets all mixed up in the imagination. And suddenly, yeah. as you've said, we've missed the point of yeah. the story as an expression of God's nature. I mean, and I look at uh, Dan Schwabauer's book, um, Maxine Justice, Galactic Attorney. I mean, it's, it's, becomes, <laughs> it's a romp because you have this failed, you know, woman attorney who is representing aliens who are suing the earth. <laughs> this I mean, is better than She-Hulk, by the way, folks. <laughs> it's just, it's just hilarious. Oh yeah. And then She-Hulk comes out. I'm going, oh, phooey. We had it first. <laughs> we had that idea first, first by a go. year. Even when we did our book For Whom the Sun Sings was a, an entire land where everyone is blind except for one young boy who can see. And that year, Apple TV comes out with their TV show called C, oh, which is Bullock. a people yeah. who can't see. And I just right. went, no, <laughs> we, we were ahead of the game. Oh my goodness sake. See, this is what I miss not subscribing to so many streaming services. No Apple TV, <laughs> no Amazon Prime, no Netflix. Like I, I feel like a 1980s Christian boycotter now, <laughs> and I'm trying to read more books. It's just sort of more of a New Year's resolution than a religious crusade. But I did not even know that there was a uh, for whom the sun does, for whom the sun, does, whatever the title was. I didn't know right. there was a TV show with basically uh, accidentally stealing the premise. And it, the irony is that I didn't know about that show either, except it was uh, commercials in a Super Bowl. And I'm sitting here watching this Super Bowl, and this commercial comes on. I went no, 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 no. <laughs> That's our no. book. <laughs> That's our book. But they're from what I understand, the TV show is very different from our book. That book, For Whom the Sun Sings, has a uh, an extraordinary twist in the end that uh, had me screaming at the, the screen as I was reading it first time. So anyway, it's kind of fun when you uh, get to play in this, this world of imagination. Well, we've had a lot of uh, Enclave authors on Fantastical Truth, uh, including uh, Wesley, uh, For Whom the Sun Sings, and a bunch of others, uh, past and present. And and uh, coming up in the future. So we'll be looking forward to hearing from more of those and following where these Enclave stories are going. 
I guess that leads us to chapter three, then. Uh, what does the future hold uh, for Enclave and Christian fantasy? Now, mind you, I could stay for a very long time, like just asking, trying to pick your brain, Steve, about the differences <laughs> between Christian made fantasy and you know, what's going on with the general market. Yeah. But, you know, there's only so much you can do in, in cursing the darkness or critiquing the darkness because we're not supposed yeah. to curse uh, and instead lighting <laughs> these creative flames. Uh, and that's something I increasingly see a need for, you know, even beyond Christian engagement with popular culture. Uh, I used to do a lot more articles, reviews of you know, popular culture, and occasionally uh, people will ask me to do more of that kind of thing. And I'm like, no, I really want to kind of do Lorehaven now and draw more attention to Christian made stories. And that includes uh, what Enclave is doing uh, now with uh, Oasis Family Media. And we'll hear more about Oasis from Steve Smith, Lord willing, uh, next time. But that does lead me to ask then about the uh, the sci-fi future for Enclave. Uh, we've talked sure. about this some. What is next that you can reveal for the expanding Enclave universe? Well, during the negotiations for Oasis to purchase Enclave, the owner of Oasis asked me, why are you only doing 12 books a year? And I laughed, only? Well, for one thing, that's all I can afford. And we are a very small group of us, and this is about the max that we can handle. And so he said, well, what is your feeling about expanding that, the number of titles? And I said, well, if that's what you want to do, it's going to be your money that's going to be underwriting it and we have to have the infrastructure sales structure all the other production things have got to be in place to under underwrite that so in 2023 we are going to be doing 15 new titles in 2024 we have 19 18 or 19 already scheduled so think of that that's 2 years from now and we already have a very full plate in 2024, and it will carry forward from that into 2025 and beyond with the ultimate goal to try to do 24 a year, two a month, and if not more, we'll see. We'll see how God works and uh, if the market is able to absorb that much content or if they will start becoming selective because that's one of the things you have to ask. If you have to pay for every book that you get, then do you become selective or you just simply buy everything because you don't want to read anything else? And we have enough to keep you happy and fulfilled in this category of fiction. Uh, you won't even have to go anywhere else. Uh, that would be, <laughs> that'd be a dream. I don't think people think that way. But that's the idea, is that we are going to be expanding our offerings slowly but surely. It takes time. I mean, I can contract a book today, but it's probably not going to be out for 18 months because it takes a while. Even if it's written today, I've got to put it in the spot where it fits so that we can create the momentum and have everybody in place. If you're a new author, how do you coordinate your cover reveals? How do you handle your social media? How do you get the word out and uh, so that it becomes and it lands with an impact from a sales standpoint and then a readership standpoint where people start going, this was so amazing. Tell their, you know, tell their 10 friends uh, about Wonderland Trials by Sarah Ella. My hope is that as we have proven already that we're here to stay, that it will also begin to attract 
uh, authors who may have only been looking at the general market or have been looking at larger publishers and realizing that we have a place where they can thrive and to be able to tell their stories without having editors tell them they need to put in unbiblical characters. I know of one author that was with Simon & Schuster, and he will never publish with them again. They told him, this has to have it happen in your books, and you're like, it will not. And that's the pressure that the general market is going to start putting on our authors. And I, I want to be a place where they can come and be a creative without having that fear. We've known many homeschoolers that would love two new books every month. We've, Stephen and I have both been to these uh, homeschool conferences and you see these kids walking around with giant stacks of books or <laughs> reading one book as they're checking out another book. And just, uh, we're a homeschool family-ish. We're kind of a hybrid family. And so we, we got books everywhere. And my wife has a whole lending system with all these other homeschool moms. And so oh, that's great. Uh, that's fantastic to hear that the, uh, the titles are going to keep expanding. And we'll try, and we'll try to do a mix of, of YA and adult. Now, someone has asked me, what's the difference? And I said, well, for one thing, the age of the characters is going to usually be the first step in determining whether it's YA or adult. But secondly, uh, adult novels tend to either be more dense in their storytelling, more complex in the multiple uh, subplots that, that are wrapped into the story. And certain themes can be dealt with because let's say the character, main character is married. That's going to be, creates a dynamic that a 15 year old would just wouldn't understand. Uh, they might see it in their parents if they're, if they have parents that are still together, you know, so there's this tension of what is going to be YA versus adult. For example, Lisa Berggren, did a series uh, called The River of Time a few years back with uh, David C. Cook and now is uh, published by Bethany House. Their YA, kind of a time slip where the characters go back in time and then they come forward. You have all that going on. Well, her new series with Enclave, it's called Oceans of Time. And so you see the progression of some of these characters now as adults. So we're writing these as adult stories. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So we're able to carry those readers who fell in love with the books 10 years ago that are, they're probably graduated from high school now or graduated from college now, and they could still enjoy them. But that's the idea that you have, the themes are different. Nature of what they're dealing with is a little different, but there is that subtle shift of what works and the irony is that many adults read YA just because they're enjoyable. They're good stories. They're fun. Well, Steve, you've mentioned some of the risks in the general market. I'm curious if you're willing to go here. I'm just curious about like some of the opportunities for growth among Christian fantasy novels, as well as some of the risks uh, that you've seen apart from maybe, you know, some uh, extra biblical ideas of uh, the supernatural and angels and demons and things like uh, in, any interest in touching on like some of the uh, some of the areas for caution uh, for readers who are trying to find a great book out there? I mean, it may say it's a Christian book, you know, it's made by a Christian, but at the same time, especially if we get more and more stories, uh, there will always be a need for parents and just individual readers uh, to be discerning as they want to find a book that's going to help them glorify God and not sure. just look into themselves for the answers and all of that sort of thing. Well, 
there's no real easy answer other than to become a consistent listener and reader of Lorehaven. You become one of those curators. Uh, there's an organization called Redeemed Reader, for example. Mm. Yes. And it, the idea of who is out there curating the titles that are going to work. Now, that would mean you're probably not going to be buying things when they're brand new, unless you have a particular author that you trust. But this is where you do look at the spine. Most people don't know who publishes a book. I love doing this at writers' conferences. I'll ask, so who's Stephen King's publisher? And of course, the room is blank. They don't care. They don't read Stephen King. Or they say, okay, John Grisham. Again, the room is blank. I said, who's, who, okay, who's Max Lucado's publisher? The room is blank. I went, you see, you don't even look. So I'm saying you need to start looking. So as a parent or as a reader, if it says Orbit or Tor or Bain or some of these other, you know, Del Rey, you're going to go, okay, that's a secular publisher. I'm going to need to dig around and find out, is this an appropriate story? Is this something I'm going to enjoy? But my hope is that if you looked at the spine and saw Enclave, you'd go, oh, I, I can trust that. I don't have to worry about it. It used to be, and there were, I still remember this issue back in my uh, early Bethany House days. We had a, a sit down at a convention with eight booksellers. And we had invited them as Bethany House, we had invited these booksellers to come to us and tell us what Bethany House was doing right and doing wrong in fiction. It was actually very a very wonderful, very open discussion. And a couple of the booksellers saying, I used to be able to trust XYZ Publisher, I won't name it, but they just did a book over here that they had sex scenes in it. It's a Christian publishing company, for goodness sake. Now, does that mean I have to read all, those, all their books now before I, I sell them? And then said, but we know we can trust Bethany House. You're not going to sneak something in. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. That was, I, I really don't think anyone in that room at the time would realize that I'd be in this position. But I've never forgotten that. Do not break the trust of your marketplace, of your reader. Again, they may disagree. They might say that book wasn't Christian enough, or they might say it didn't do for me what I was hoping, but it was still reasonably within the confines or the boundaries of what would be acceptable to that group. You know, you can't publish to the most conservative of a group because they wouldn't be reading speculative fiction in the first place. Steve, I really appreciate that. And it's a good, quick apologetic of the need existing and still existing need for gatekeepers. Some people yep. will lament about the gatekeepers and you're, you're technically a gatekeeper and no matter what side of the gate someone is on, I think that there is a purpose for keeping the gate. I mean, it's almost a biblical concept. Uh, the, the pastor, it's not the same thing as an agent or a publisher, but the pastor is supposed to guard the church from false teaching. And that's right. not just to serve the congregation. It's in obedience to Christ. Uh, and in your case, it's just simply knowing who your market is and what their needs are and then uh, helping them serve them, uh, not just through enclave but through the nonfiction and other fiction authors whom you represent and be very cognizant of theological drift 
so that things that may have not been on even a conversation 15 years ago are now in the conversation. And you have to say, well, where do we land on that? Oh, we're just not going to go there. That's just not going to be our, our thing. We're not an apologetics organization. We're not a theological publisher. We're publishing fiction. Now, on my agent side, goodness, I represent apologists like Nancy Piercy and William Lane Craig and yep. some of these incredibly brilliant thinkers. And let them carry that ball. I mean, I'm there to support them so they don't have to think about the business side of their, their, their life. And to, to say there are some really important people out there uh, as thought leaders. We are not necessarily thought leaders, but we would like to be storyteller leaders. Well, and I love the picture of you reading the book by Stephen Lawhead, and you get to the end, and it's this allegory that everything clicks in your head, and it leads you into a time of worship. So I even like this idea of storytellers as worship leaders. What, what a wonderful experience. And, and for an author to lead someone else into worship of God, through a story that expresses God's own creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. I, th- I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years since This Present Darkness was published in 1985, how they were driven to their knees in prayer, not realizing the nature of principalities and powers. And you're going to go, you mean you weren't aware before? Well, probably hadn't really come up in polite conversation or from the pulpit or wasn't talked about in Bible study. And then suddenly a a man tells a fantastical story showing the power of prayer in the supernatural world as a warrior in changing how things happened. You kind of go, whoa, I never thought of it that way. And of course, there's people who pull it apart and say it's not theologically correct or it's not you know, the, the best literature in the world. (laughs) Exactly. And you just want to say, that's not the point. The point is, is read it and then start talking about the nonfiction elements that have come out. This has been part of the problem. I think in all of Christian fiction, speculative or not in trying to describe it to the marketplace. Because most people will ask about a book, what's it about? And in a novel, people will try to give its nonfiction application. They will say, oh, that's the adoption novel. Or that's a book about sex trafficking. Or that's a book about the Civil War. And you want to go, no, no, what's the story? What is the story? Tell me the story. Oh, it's the story of this little child and doing this. And I was like, oh, now that's interesting. But when we approach fiction with a nonfiction mentality, we lose its intent. Because as I said earlier, we each bring our own story to the story, and the intent sometimes is different than the author uh, originally had planned. And that's the beauty of fiction. Whereas nonfiction, it's usually pretty well guided where the author is coming to its conclusion and helping you get there. Whether you agree or disagree, you're on the journey with them and you can, you can see where they're going. But with fiction, you're just 
you've turned off that part of your brain and you're just kind of wallowing in the story and letting it flow through your brain. And you come away going, huh, that's interesting. Steve, you mentioned earlier about people who open a, a Christian-made novel and they're like, well, where's the Christ figure? I mean, I got, you got to find Jesus in here, possibly by name, uh, possibly, you know, acting just like he does in the Bible. My thought there has always been that the actual Christ figure in any Christian-made book is hiding in plain sight, and it's the author. Christ yeah. figure is simultaneous with the label Christian. Christian, that's Christ figure, literally right there, one who acts like Christ. And in that case, to me, any heroic character could be described as a Christ figure figure or a Christian figure. Uh, it's not necessarily that Jesus is going to be found in the pages, either by allegory or by name, but the characters are going to act like Christians if it is a Christian-made book with heroic characters. And so I, I think that if someone asks then, well, what is the book about? You know, what is the nonfiction issue? I think that's great to reframe the question. What is the story about? Uh, yep. What is Maxine Justice Galactic Attorney about? What's the theme? The theme is Maxine Justice. Hint, it's exactly. right there in the title. You know, it's like <laughs> Harry Potter. What's the book about? Uh, it's about Harry Potter. You know, well, Maxine Justice is about Maxine Justice, which is why I always appreciate when a book title is brave enough to put the character name right there in the title. It's like it's kind of a, a, a brave move. Like here's an iconic character. Uh, the book is not about aliens or the uh, legal profession or corruption in the justice system as much as it is about. Maxine Justice. I will use an example occasionally when I'm teaching this of John Grisham's novel, The Firm. Not many people will remember it now because it's been out so long, but maybe some people may remember the film or they might have watched it because I think Tom Cruise was in it. But you have a character who has to decide to make the wrong decision and gain the world in wealth and prestige. or do the right thing and have and lose it all and be under threat of death. That is an incredibly Christian moral decision. Most people didn't know at the time that John Grisham is a Christian, teaches fifth grade Sunday school at his church, and has been on mission trips and all of this. They didn't realize that he had a Christian background until he wrote his novel, The Testament, many years later. The difference is, is that in the firm, the man makes the right decision. He chooses to do the right thing and lose it all and be under a whatever, whatever. But you're not told why. In my opinion, what would make the novel a Christian novel, and I'm using air quotes, a Christian novel, is if we understood why. What was the motivation in the character for making that choice? Was there something in his background, in his psyche, in his understanding of life? And it, could it be that he was a Christ follower? We don't know. It's completely missing in the book. That was not John Grisham's intent. And of course, there are certain scenes that would not be appropriate in a book in the evangelical market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, theoretically, we are talking about the difference where you have a story that creates a moral choice and the author makes the correct or the character makes the correct choice but in my opinion a christian novel will somehow let you know why yeah what is it in that now in fantasy that's a little harder because you know there may not be church that may not exist in the world that has been created in this particular story world 
but there's got to be some redemptive elements that come through where you can see, oh, this person is of high moral fiber and they make their decisions based on that. That is a perfect circle back to the title of this episode about why does Enclave Publishing create Christian fantastical fiction? Now I think we know a little bit more about why (laughs) currently we've got one book a month coming out. As you mentioned, Steve, next year, there's going to be 15, uh, Lord willing, after that, uh, even more, and possibly with that final goal of two new books per month. And each one, of course, thanks to Oasis, is also getting an uh, audiobook as well. So if you're not able to read so much as listen to your favorite books, uh, you can get that uh, through the uh, audiobook version. And that's a simultaneous release, right? Uh, the same day that, as the hardcover drops, the audiobook drops. It's, it's a lot of work. Oh, my goodness. I cannot um, imagine. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a little challenging when you have uh, books that are 140,000 words, as you remember have to realize it's an hour per 10,000 words. So that's a lot of recording uh, that has to be done and have to have it in the production schedule. So we're having to work that in even into our expectations for a book to be finished so that we can have it ready. It has to be completely copy edited and proofread before we even get it to the audio people. So we can't be like a, um, you know, an indie author that, writes their book, gets it proofed, and then publishes it on Thursday. There's, we just ask you have to back it up because there's an entirely different other process that has to be added into the, the deal. And Oasis is still one of the few audio publishers that still does CDs. They actually do physical clamshell, physical CD, audio CDs if people want them. And it's amazing how much they continue to sell every month in their catalog. They've got 2,000 audios in their catalog. Incredible. I look forward to finding out more about that. uh, They're doing uh, the entire Edgar Rice Burroughs um, collection in audio. And they've never been done in audio before. And so they're doing all of those. Really now? Uh, Okay. So like the books that you read or Princess of Mars or any any of them? Yeah, all of those. They've got 20 some odd of them done already in cooperation with the Burroughs estate. So they're pretty cool people. That's fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to uh, getting at least one of those cool people in the studio for uh, the next episode here in this Steve saga. Uh, Steve Lobby, you can find uh, your agency at stevelobby.com or Enclave Publishing, enclavepublishing.com. We'll include all those links in the show notes. Uh, any other action items uh, for our faithful listeners uh, before we send you back down the tunnel? Buy everything we got. Keep us in business. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm being facetious, but I, I, we do truly do everything, Sully Deo Gloria, for the oh. glory of God. This is Amen not, to that. This is Amen. not to put us on any pedestal. We have the intent of trying to expand and grow God's kingdom through storytelling in a unique category in a way that no one else on this planet is doing. And I just think that's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful mission and opportunity for us all. Well, thanks for joining us, Steve. And hopefully we get to see more books that show the imagination of God, the creativity of God, not the literal Jesus literally showing up in someone's life, but working through the author to uh, demonstrate the universe that God's made, the laws that he's made, and sort of giving that little peek you know, into the Christian worldview a little bit 
But I like what you said that we got to focus on stories. We we got to focus on the characters and just the experience of the reader of entering a new world. So um, I can't wait to enter more new worlds from Enclave. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it was a pleasure of mine. Thank you much. Well, I love Steve's line there. Take us to your reader. So Stephen, I think we've got some messages in the comm station. So take us to our listeners. Absolutely. Lots of folks have been excited about the Steve saga. It's been shared by Oasis and Enclave and other allies in this quest for the best Christian-made fantastical fiction. One comment comes from Lindsay Llewellyn, who says about the Steve Raza interview, part one of the Steve saga, it was a great interview. Loved the behind-the-scenes look into the library system and how they curate their selection, plus the geeky sci-fi space opera chat. Very much agreed with that there, Lindsay. Writer Vanessa also says the Steve saga sounds info-packed. Indeed it is, and we aren't even finished yet. Uh, So far, we're about two-thirds of the way into the saga. Stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. And will this be the end of the Steve saga? Maybe. There may be more. We'll have to see. Well, and as Steve Lobby said, great fiction helps you cross a street you've never crossed before. So to you, our listener, we'd love to hear what is a book that helped you cross a new street and just experienced a whole new world in in ways you never thought you could. Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com with your answer to that question or any thoughts on this episode. Tag us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven. Or if you are a member of the Lorehaven Guild, you can comment in the super secret channel just for fantastical truth on there. Send us a note. Speaking of said guild, you can join this guild for free, but only by subscribing free to Lorehaven. So just go to lorehaven.com and put your email address in the box that pops up. We've just started our book quest. We do those every month, and this new one is for The Hobbit, the classic fantasy by J.R.R. Tolkien. We have gone on an adventure, but if you stayed behind to try to pack your handkerchief or something else that is very hobbity, no worries. You can run, leap the fences, storm into the wilds and catch up with our party of dwarves led by a very sporadic wizard. We're going to face down goblins and cave trolls and wargs and all kinds of things. Just go to lorehaven.com, enter your email address, and we will send you the secret invitation to join the Lorehaven Guild. Next on Fantastical Truth, join us for our thrilling conclusion to the Steve saga. For this finale, you will enjoy amazing adventures of yesteryear in riveting recorded form. There will be more spaceships and dragons. You might even soar high above the jungles of Christian publishing on the back of a sky turtle. Yes, indeed, our third and final Steve, at least for now, Steve Smith, the president of Oasis Family Media, will arrive to share more about the Oasis and what is coming next in this world. Meanwhile, perhaps you've never heard of Enclave Publishing. Perhaps you're interested in more of this behind-the-scenes work that goes into making these amazing Christian fantastical stories. We're going to have more conversations with those authors, regardless of whether they're named Steve, going forward on Fantastical Truth and at Lorehaven. And we thank God for these women and men who are making these stories, not just for entertainment or edification, but for the glory of God, practicing imagination to worship Him We want to join in that goal as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.